Yes, this is a lot like the Star Wars prequels, I guess. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share their views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm your host, Mike Zolkowski. And I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. And before we start today, I'd like to ask the question, Sean, what's your favorite ZZ Top album? Mike, my favorite is Digwayo. Scott, what's your favorite ZZ Top album? You know, Mike, I'll have to go with Eliminator. It's the obvious choice, but I am a sharp-dressed man, so it's appropriate. And myself, I love Trace Hombres. Today on Come and Take It, we present a very special episode, as it's the 178th anniversary of the Battle of Gonzales, the very first battle of the Texas Revolution. Scott, what were you taught about the Texas Revolution and the Battle of Gonzales? Well, you know, Texas history class was a really long time ago. And I don't remember a lot of the details, but I do remember the emphasis that was put on the Battle of Gonzales being like the the Lexington, Battle of Lexington of the Texas Revolution. It's the event that really kicked things off and pushed the settlers in Texas to pursue their own independence. And what about you, Mike? Well, for me, I found that the Battle of Gonzales, the symbol that stuck with me from my school days was the image of the flag. And, you know, it's our namesake here on the podcast, Come and Take It. And it's such a bold taunt and image of showing this beautiful, huge cannon, this powerful war machine with Come and Take It written right across the top, taunting the Mexican forces and saying, you know, we're the king of the hill, you know, come knock us off our pedestal if you, if you dare. And Sean, what, what about you? Well, Mike, I was kind of taught the same thing you guys were. Uh, basically in 1835, after years and years of oppression from the Mexican government, Texian colonists uh, in a tiny village of Gonzales were given an ultimatum by the forces of the evil dictator Santa Ana to give up their cannon, which was their sole defense against Comanche raiders. And this band of brave militia took a stand and repulsed those troops in what became the spark that ignited the Texas Revolution and would eventually lead to glorious independence. And... Of course, this is the myth of the battle and of the revolution, but it's not entirely the full story. Uh, and really to understand the full picture of the significance of this battle and of the Texas Revolution as a whole, we really have to look at the bigger picture. And we got to dig a bit deeper into the story of what really happened. Yeah. It's so kind of some of the background of the battle, what was going on at the time. Uh, before 1821, immigration was illegal under Spanish law. But it still happened. You know, people still wanted to come and settle in this big wilderness. Um, Americans were often squatting in parts of Texas illegally because they were, for whatever reason, they wanted to go west, stake their claim. Texas was there. Why not? Tejanos, which was the term for legal Hispanic immigrants and their descendants, were mostly concentrated in the Bear or San Antonio La Bahia which is Goliad and Nacogdoches areas, as well as along the Rio Grande. Uh, this was there were probably about 2,000 or so of them by 1800. Now, Mexican independence movements kind of started in 1810, went through 1821, and were supported by residents of Texas, as well as Americans. Uh, filibustering campaigns of uh, Gutierrez McGee, James Long, and Louis Ari were uh, e- usually in support of an independent Mexico. And when we talk about filibustering, we're not talking about frontiersmen standing on a hill and giving a big speech and trying to, you know, wait out the 
the army. Uh, the term filibustering here is the original meaning, which is an unauthorized warfare by independent people. Uh, pirates sometimes engaged in filibusters. When Mexico won their independence in 1821, they kind of opened up their attitude towards immigration and the sparsely populated Tejas, which we now call Texas. That's right, Scott. And so while Mexico's fighting for its independence during this period, in the U.S., there was a combination of peace and political stability uh, after the War of 1812 as the conflicts with the European powers were over between the U.S. and European powers, uh, which made population movement a lot safer. But this also combined with uh, increased immigration into the U.S., and economic instability, which also spurred this moment movement westward into these open lands. The Panic of 1819 was the first economic crisis in U.S. history. It was one of the worst depressions in the U.S., and it ruined land and business ventures for many people, particularly in the South and the West, where there was a lot of land speculation. And these included a gentleman named Moses Austin. He was from Missouri a banker, and he actually was ruined by this panic of 1819. He came up with some radical schemes to get rich quick to get his fortune back, and one of those schemes was colonizing Texas. Upon his death, before he could realize this dream, his son Stephen, uh, Stephen Austin would take over this venture and establish the first ang Anglo colony in Texas. Uh, Mexico's 1824 constitution and colon colonization laws allowed Austin and other businessmen, they were called impresarios, uh, to set up colonies. These impresarios included Hayden Edwards, Green DeWitt, and Martin De Leon, and it allowed them to establish land grants within Texas and to bring in settlers from both the United States and from Mexico. Well, I think that's a good look at you know the Anglo side of what represented colonization, but there was clearly the Mexican Texas. Throughout the 1820s, for the most part, the Mexican government welcomed Anglo colonists, and Anglos became very loyal to Mexico. This group we refer to as Anglos uh, were also called Texians, and these were essentially white colonists of American and European descent. Uh, some of the conflicts in 1826 between Edwards and the resident landowners led to a brief revolt in Nacogdoches, but this was not supported by any of the other Anglo colonists. Right, Stephen Austin actually fought against that with the Mexican troops. Exactly. Anglo colonies were mostly left to themselves, but there remained tension between the Anglos and the Mexican government over the issue of slavery. Slavery was officially illegal in Mexico, and there were other Mexican laws about religion and commerce that they expected the colonists to adhere to. Yeah, that's right, Mike. And along with all of this happening in Texas, there were, you know, there continued to be rising uh, political tension in Mexico. Mexico's complicated political situation placed conservative centralists who supported a strong central state and liberal federalists who favored more authority to the individual states. Uh, they were constantly in conflict. Texians tended to show support for federalists. This was closer to the American government at the right, time. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I would imagine the, the philosophy of a federalist supports uh, settling frontier living and that sort of thing. Right. It's a little closer to today's concept of states' rights. That was the states governed themselves as opposed to the central government. In 1830, the centralist general Anastasio Bustamante took control of Mexico. He ended the American immigration and imposed severe duties on American goods into Texas. Illegal immigration and importation of slaves continued. By 1834, there were over 30,000 Anglos in Texas. 
there were new garrisons built in Texas to enforce customs and immigration and the immigration ban, which resulted in disturbances and violence between Anglos and government troops in Anahuac and Velasco. In 1832, General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana led a rebellion to depose Bustamante and restore Federalist government. Many Texans supported Santa Ana, and some fought for him, hoping to restore previous immigration laws and grant Texas statehood in Mexico. It was combined with Coahuila at the time, and that was a big sticking point with the Texan colonists. Mike, that's the Santa Ana that we know. Um, How did he get from overthrowing Bustamante to fighting Davy Crockett at the Alamo? So the Santa Ana we know from our TV shows, history books, and movies. He became president in 1833. Some of the reforms and addressing of these grievances that the colonists had occurred. Uh, Immigration was now legal after 1834. But in 1835, Santa Ana shifted to become a centralist. He revoked the Constitution of 1824 and dissolved the legislature, and he became a dictator, making him the perfect person to star in a movie called The Alibo. Um, And he also sounds an awful lot like Darth Vader. I'm just going to throw that out there. (laughs) Mm. Yes, this is a lot like the Star Wars prequels, I guess. (laughs) Six other states in Mexico revolted in 1835 also. Zacatecas was put down with extreme brutality in May. Really extreme brutality. It was pretty bad. Stephen F. Austin went to Mexico City at this point to try to negotiate a peaceful solution with Santa Ana. However, he was arrested and imprisoned for several months. Once released, he was convinced that no compromise would be reached and that Texas must make her own way. Uh, That's right, Mike. And during that time, there was some, while he was in prison, there was actually some further disturbances. But the Texians tended to try to shy away from open confrontation for respect for his safety. So this leads us to the Battle of Gonzales. After Austin was released, there was really no point in hiding everyone's disdain and disgust for the Mexican government. So the town of Gonzales was actually a town in the DeWitt colony, as we mentioned Green DeWitt earlier. It was a town in the DeWitt colony. It was mostly Anglos. And in 1831, when there was better relations with the government, they'd been given a small cannon uh, to essentially scare away uh, the Comanches. Uh, it was really tiny. It was pretty much military useless. It actually had been spiked uh, to make it so that it couldn't actually fire a shot. But it could, they could load it with gunpowder and set it off when they saw Indians in the horizon uh, and kind of scare them off. And warn everybody also working in the fields, oh, there's the Comanche coming. Yeah, and one way it was described as good for little more than starting horse races. Right. So n- not much use. This is not the magnificent cannon that you see on the flag. As tension was rising, the commander and Bayer requested the return of the cannon. Gonzalez had additionally been on edge when a centralist soldier had brutally assaulted the local colonists with no repercussion. The Gonzalez citizens refused the request to return the, command, the cannon. A hundred Mexican cavalry led by Lieutenant Francisco de Castaneda were sent to get the cannon. At the river crossing near Gonzalez, 18 militiamen stalled the Mexican troops for several, t- several days until reinforcements could arrive from the surrounding community. By that point, the 1st of October, 150 Anglos and some Tejanos had arrived to resist the taking of this cannon. The Mexican commander actually tried to negotiate. He sent an Anglo businessman into town to try to get the Texians to surrender the cannon peacefully. Uh, he later tried to negotiate with the members, the leaders of the militia directly. The Texians pointed at the gun, which stood nearby, and said, there it is, come and take it. They quickly fashioned a banner out of what's today thought to be a wedding dress, with a drawing of a cannon and the words to that effect. That's right, Sean. So early in the morning on October 2nd, fighting 
actually started out. When the Texians attacked Castaneda's camp, after brief fighting, Castaneda tried again to negotiate. He's very tenacious about negotiating. But he was unable to settle with the Texians, and fighting broke out again later in the morning. Outnumbered and outgunned, and suffering two killed and several wounded troops, Castaneda withdrew his men, having satisfied his honor and duty. This quote-unquote battle was really a few brief exchanges of fire, with one side not really wanting to fight in the first place. The only Texian casualty was a broken nose caused by a man being thrown from his horse. Uh, The skirmish was soon touted as a victory, and it was the final straw that broke the camel's back in terms of relations between Texians and the government. Uh, It became the rallying cry for communities all over the region, which ties into what I was talking about at the beginning. A week later, Goliad, the Goliad garrison, was taken. Texas forces organized into the Texan army, commanded by Stephen F. Austin. Over 300 men began to march on Bear, uh, growing as they went, and the revolt had begun. They would take Bear by Christmas, but Santa Ana was already making his way to Texas to put down the rebellion. In the end, Texas would be independent, but at the cost of many brave men at the Alamo, Goliad, and other battlefields. So Mike, what is it about the battle and the myth that's so appealing to Texans? The Battle of Gonzales represents the point where political conflict became a sustained resistance to the central Mexican government, and it demonstrated that the differences can only be solved through military action. The prevailing opinion amongst the Anglos largely shifted towards independence, but before this, there was widespread support among both of them and the Tejanos. As the war became more about independence, which was then declared on March of 1836, the narrative of Gonzales became closer to that, as we discussed earlier, of Lexington and Concord. It represented a lot of what the American Revolution did, somewhat because, but not entirely, due to circumstances of the two events which served to legitimize the independence movement by likening it to Americas. This generated a lot of support amongst the Anglo colonists from the United States. That's right, Mike. And the lasting image of the battle is, of course, the flag, which uh, came to represent the Texas independence movement and is endured as one of the great Texas symbols, inspiring this podcast for one. There's still some debate about what happened to the cannon itself, Uh, Some sources say it was used in the Siege of Bear and later at the Alamo and was melted down by Santa Ana's forces. However, other sources, including uh, legendary Texan Creed Taylor, reported that the cannon was found to be militarily useless, as we mentioned before, on the march to Bear and was buried near Gonzales on a riverbank. In 1936, actually, a flood revealed a small buried cannon near the road between Gonzales and Bear and is on display in Gonzales today. Though historians say it's probably not the actual canon, it's still an interesting find. Of the flag itself, uh, even less is known. The only primary source mentioning its fate was Taylor's, who said it was abandoned with the buried cannon. Right, Scott. And, you know, there's an interesting side note. On the same day as Gonzales, Mexican troops were sent to Victoria, which is a little further south. It's in De, De Leon County, which was largely uh, populated with Tejanos. And they were sent to retrieve a cannon there, as well as to arrest a Federalist agitator named Jose Carvajal. Uh, The troops were turned away by militia led by the alcalde, which is the word for mayor at the time, uh, Placido Benavides. Benavides actually would go on to be a major part of the early revolt. Uh, He threw the capture of Goliad and he fought at the Battle of Bayer. But when independence was declared, he would resign his, his commission from the army 
as he opposed separation from Mexico. He didn't want to leave the Mexican country. He and his family, along with many other Tejanos who did not favor independence but supported uh, resisting Santa Ana, would be forced from their homes after the war. And this is really a sad story because the circumstances around Victoria are largely the same as those at Gonzales, and they had similar results. But today it's virtually unknown and untaught because the key players, they found themselves basically on the wrong side of history. Uh, Benavides and Carbajal, as well as the De Leon family, uh, which they were both married into, they were fascinating figures. They were brave patriots and great Texans, and they really should be remembered more and better than they are today. I'm 39 years old, and this is the first time I've ever heard this story of yeah. Victoria. And I think that's a really an example of, we have to dig deeper into our history yeah. and understand the full context of what happened. So in conclusion, do you guys have any other final thoughts on the battle of Gonzales? Well, Sean, I think you nailed it in that last part there, the learning about these things and digging into the history of these actual events that we've kind of learned as mythical events um, shows that we need to dig deeper and figure out, the con like you said, the context of what really happened and where we really come from and what really brought us to the present day. And from my point of view, I think that the myth uh, is still very important. The idea of the brash boldness of come and take it lives with us much like the don't tread on me from the American Revolution. And it served as the spark which really did ignite the fire of the Texas Revolution. And it becomes really the very first point where we can see the colonists stand up to the oppressive Mexican government. Yeah, and I think that that's there's a valid point in, in celebrating our myth and our mythology in Texas. And we love our mythology of Texas. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so please follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast or go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm at Max Sean with two N's. I am Scotticus on Twitter. If you like the show, please tell your friends, leave a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook. It all really helps us out. We hope you join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.